All right, so let's we jump into 2 Corinthians there. Has any of you any of you ever tried to change? Like anything about yourself? Like to stop, you know, being so fill in the blank, right? Stop being so this, stop, stop that. Anybody tried to change? Try to get better? Be more like Jesus? Anything? Yeah, now, right now, has any of you ever been frustrated with that process and the difficulty that that could bring? I remember whenever I was a, a young Christian, I got saved when I was a teenager, and I remember, like, I, I knew enough from, from you know, the, the preaching that I was under to, um, to know that things were supposed to change, and change pretty dr- drastically, right? Uh, I'd, I'd heard 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if anyone is in Christ, right, that he is what? A new creation, and all old things have passed away. Behold, he has become new. And, and so I, I knew that, and honestly, I experienced some of that. Right? There was a lot of things that I was able to stop, and, and it, it did change very drastically in my life in that moment. But then there were other things that, that, that didn't, right? That, that I was like, okay, like, I'm not sure this took fully, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm still, not everything's new in here. In fact, there's still some old things that I hate that I'm, I'm struggling. Anybody? And so I was like, maybe this didn't take. Maybe I need to, like, maybe you'd be plunged back under the blood. Maybe they got me out too soon. There's still some stuff on me. Let's do this again. And honestly, I'm half joking, but like I did sort of like, I, I thought I wasn't saved and I, I, you know, I did that whole deal. And, um, and so many of you can relate to that, but really what was going on there is, is sort of a, a misunderstanding for me in my young Christian life of, of what God was doing in that moment. And, and to be made new, to be born again, to be justified and saved and forgiven is one thing. And then, and that is, it is not like, that is not untrue, but the process of that being fully lived out and fully engaged in our life is sort of something that is that, a process, right? So there's justification where we are saved, forgiven of our sins, given a new life, and we are new in sense of uh, our spirit and what drives us, what, what, uh, what our inner being is indeed a new creation, but it's at war, Paul says, with the old, and it battles out. And over time, um, Jesus increases in us, and we become more and more like him, and that's called sanctification. And so we're in the middle of a series called Kingdom Come. And in this series, we've been talking about the, the, what does it mean to say that, to pray that, the way Jesus taught us to pray, right? And when he was teaching his disciples to pray, he said, we should pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, holy or hallowed be thy name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that mean? What does that look like? And so we've been looking at uh, really God's work throughout the Old Testament and, and then what he's done at Christ on the cross and, and the resurrection and then what he's going to do at the end where it's sort of the tagline for the series is understanding our present in light of God's future. Like what God is going to do when that kingdom fully comes so we're in the season of already, not yet. Like Christ has already established his kingdom. He's already given us freedom and salvation, but it's not fully realized until the end. And so we're in this, this, this tension of a yes already, but not fully yet. And so what does it look like? So we've looked at, okay, where, where we're headed, right, is this glorious Glorious day whenever all sickness and all pain and all sin is destroyed, right? And so if you're looking at, like I say this often, but salvation is, 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 is an active process. We have been saved from the penalty of sin, okay? So when you confess Christ as your, as your Savior, you repent of your sins, you are forgiven and you have been saved from the penalty. You will no longer face the penalty of your sins, which is death. Christ did that for you. So you have been saved from the penalty. And then presently, we are being saved, Paul uses that language, from the power of sin. So in increasing amounts, we're being saved from the power of sin. And then one day, praise God, one glorious day, we will be saved 
completely and fully from the presence of sin. As he undoes all things that are evil and untrue, right? And he restores. And so that's, the, that's, that's where we're headed, but in this moment of, okay, so what does that look like? And so we have been um, walking through that very thing, and, and last week we looked at, um, okay, so that's where we're headed. That's where Jesus is, 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 is taking this deal. So what does it mean to pray that right now? What is our participation in that um, as we wait? Do we just wait? When we pray kingdom come, does that mean we're just, just waiting for that day when he comes back and, and gets rid of all the evil, right? And, and for some, that has led to some complacency or some really weird like activity as you sort of watch every bit of news with the book of Daniel and Revelation open and trying to connect dots and, and telling all your friends how the Lord's coming back like, this afternoon, right? And we get some weird graphs and, and some puzzled things about that. And some people get over-consumed with that deal. Other people just sort of push away from the table altogether and go, yeah, you know, we'll just wait till this, this thing does. And so it, it can kind of fall either way. And then on the other side of that, some would, would, would say, okay, we're not just waiting. In fact, we have to be the ones that bring the kingdom, that, that Jesus is, is looking to us to do away with every social injustice and every uh, means of evil, and it's up to us, and we've got to build the kingdom in our own strength. And both of those really missed the mark as far as what Christ has called us to. And so last week we looked at the Great Commission. As Jesus is leaving to take his throne, right, the, the resurrected Christ still in his physical body is ascending into heaven to take his throne. What does he say? What does he tell his disciples? He says, you go and make disciples. You're going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and all the way to the ends of the world. He says, go and conquer. Go and declare the good news of Jesus Christ as king. Pardon is available. Go make disciples. So last week we looked at the kingdom comes, the kingdom grows as we declare the good news and as Jesus saves more people. So it grows in number, literally, as we share the faith, as we evangelize People get saved and the kingdom increases. It comes, it increases as people come to know him. And so that's one way that the kingdom comes. That's one way that the kingdom grows is by increase in number. And some churches want to sort of pit these things against each other. Some churches are all about um, evangelism and they just want to grow really wide and really, you know, have lots and lots of people there. And they're not really worried about taking anybody very deep. And then other churches will sort of mock them and say, well, we're not, you know, we're, we're about discipleship and we're about going deep with our people. And so we're not going to have, we're not going to be a mile wide and inch deep said we're going to be really really deep and we don't really care about people out there we're just going to keep studying in here and and we sort of neighbor anyway so there's two sort of ditches you can fall off in that when really they don't need to be pit against one another at all right to make disciples is the command and evangelism is just step one in that right to share our faith to get people converted to get them born again that's just step one in that process and then and then jesus says and baptize them and the father son and the holy spirit and teaching them to obey all that i've taught you so it's yes and yes, right, it's all part of the same deal. So the kingdom comes, yes, as we share our faith and more people enter in, become born again. But then also as we increase in our holiness. As we personally increase in our holiness, as we lean into everything that Jesus taught them, the, the kingdom increases in that way, the kingdom comes, kingdom grows in us personally. And that's what we want to look at today is that, that second part of that deal. Okay, once we're born again, what does it look like for us to pray the kingdom come and how does it grow in us personally? So I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 there to that end. And, and this is a really a beautiful, um, what, what we got here is Paul writing um, what many call a commentary on 
Exodus 32 and 34. So let's jump into this, and we're going to need to back up and get a little bit of context to really get the impact of the text. But um, what Tim read there for us in 2 Corinthians 3 is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. So it starts out in verse 12 and says this, Since we have such a hope, we're going to have to reference what's he talking about, we are very bold, not like Moses who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What in the world is he talking about? Okay, so in this series, we've talked about God's work in, in bringing his kingdom is not just this new thing. It's really a restoration of what he originally made us to be. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, as he created man and woman, he made them in his image. And what did he do? He told them to go and rule the earth, right? To have dominion over it, to, to subdue this thing. So what, what he says is like, go and build, go and make cities, go and make and build, like grow families, go and produce art, go and cultivate, fill the earth and subdue it. That's the picture, us ruling with God in his presence, co like that's what he made us to do. That was the original design and everything was what? Good. Right? It was good. It was very good, in fact. That's how God made us to be. That's where we experience freedom. That's what we long for. That's how we were created, was to, to be with him in his presence and also to, fill out, to live out that purpose of ruling with him and, filling, and, and taking the, the, unfor- the wildness of the earth and bring it in some submission along with him for his glory. But things went wrong. And instead of ruling with him, sin entered and we rebelled against him. And that created this chasm, this divide, right? Where the people that were supposed to be with God and find their life in his presence have now been removed because of their own sin and their own rebellion. And so God is not going to be content with that just being the reality. Instead, in his mercy and his grace, in that very moment, he says it won't always be this way. There will be a seed that comes from this woman and he will one day crush the head of the enemy and I'm going to set all this to rights. And so the rest of the story of the Bible is him moving in that direction and, and cultivating his kingdom coming. And so we, we looked at, actually, as we started out this series in Exodus, as God brings his people out of the slavery in Egypt, that in that very moment, as he's about to give them the law, before he gives them the law, the famous story, like before that, he, he, he leans in. He says, hey, listen, this is what I'm doing with you. I've done all that. I rescued you. I saved you from your slavery so that... I could be your God and you would be my people. I'm going to be with you, be in your presence. And and through that, you're going to be a kingdom of priests where the rest of the world is going to see that I am the source of life. I am the place where they can find hope, healing, and glory. It's through me. And as you worship me, the rest of the world will see that's what we're doing here. And that's what he's been doing throughout the whole story of the New Testament or the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament, and Christ is the seed that comes that crushes the enemy. And on the cross, that is his death blow to Satan and death. And then when he was resurrected, he is declared as king. All authority, he says, on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now therefore, go. So that's the king that we worship. And, and if you think about it, if you're looking at just practically how a king conquers a, a land, right? If you, if you think about that just in, in world history terms, like you're going to come in and, and the king is going to overthrow the existing power, right? They're going to overthrow the existing power, and then to the subjects that remain, there's going to be, you know, depending on the type of king, but there's going to be an opportunity to say, okay, there's a new ruler, there's a new king, will you pledge your allegiance to him or not? And if you do, 
then there's pardon available. And then, and then okay, so it's like that's the first step. You, you gotta, you gotta, you're going to declare your allegiance to the new king or not. And if you do, so that's first step. If you do now, okay, now we got to know how is this king going to have us live? What's his rules? What's the new administration? What is life going to be like under this ruler? And this, so this is sort of what we're seeing Paul allude to here in this text is that in Christ, we have a new king. He has overthrown the power of darkness. He's overthrown Satan, sin, and death. And he has come, and we're going to see, he has come not to just bring a new set of rules so that he can have things his way. He's come to bring freedom. He's come to bring restoration. He's come to put things back the way that they were meant to be. And so when he's saying here that since we have such a hope, he's referencing back to that moment on Sinai when God has brought his people out of slavery and he's having this exchange and they all, they said, okay, we want that. We'll obey your commands and we'll be your people. And then before they can even get the whole deal worked out, they've already failed twice, right? And one of them is the epic failure of the golden calf. And in that moment, what happens is God is ready to be done with him. He's saying, I'm not going. You guys can go on to the promised land, but I will not be with you. The consequences of their sin is, once again, God saying, I cannot be with you. But it is Moses' intercession that allows, that God says, okay, I'll go. Because Moses says this, hey, if, it's, if you don't go with us, there's no point in going. If it's not your presence, Lord, then this is not salvation. And what he's saying here is, is if, if it's just a bunch of rules, if it's just a bunch of self-help and how can we get better, do better, have better lives but based on rules, and that's what we're searching the scriptures for, then he's saying, this is, this is dumb. This is, we should all go home. Paul will say later, right? It's, it's foolishness if you don't go with us. And so this is about presence. This is about the power of his presence and the longing for that that we're experiencing. And, and so what happened is God said, okay, okay. I'll go. And as Moses comes back down the mountain to speak to, his, to the people, his face is lit up. It's glowing. Why? Because Moses is really awesome? No, no. Because he's been in the presence of a living and holy God. And it's incredible. He didn't even see him fully, but he's there communicating with him. And as a result, he doesn't, like, he doesn't know why everybody's freaking out. And he comes down and everybody's like, whoa, dude, you're close enough, right? And, and, and so... He veils his face so that everybody's not overwhelmed and consumed by just that. And so that's Moses bringing the word from God about God being their king, them being his people. That's the glory of that message. And what Paul is saying is we have an even greater glory. We have an even greater message. And if that is true of that moment, how much greater is it of Christ? And so that's a bit of the context of what he's saying here. If Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. So what he's saying here is when Moses is stepping down, that's just like afterglow. Like it just took a while for it to wear off. Like it's coming to an end. They're not, they don't see Moses that way for Forever and always. When we go be, you know, be with the Lord, then it would glow again. So what was being brought to an end, Moses had to cover even that up. And so here's what Paul is saying in verse 14. But their minds were hardened. They didn't get it. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. This is, this is what you've seen happen in your own life. This is, what, like, this is the disconnect. Have you ever tried to talk to somebody about your faith? 
You ever tried to explain to somebody why you go to community group or why you're, you know, helping out foster kiddos or why you're reading your Bible on lunch hour? Like, and, and sometimes it just doesn't connect, right? Why do you believe that way? Why do you live that way? And there's just this disconnect. They don't get it. Why? Because if they don't know Jesus is Lord, it's not going to compute. Because this is not self-help stuff. This is not just rules for life. This is not just basic instructions before leaving earth. No, this is about Jesus. And so he's saying, only in Christ does this all make sense. Verse 15, yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their eyes. So they're reading the same word of God. But until Jesus takes off the veil, until our eyes, the scales fall off our eyes, as we see happens to Paul in Acts, like we won't see the true point of what God is doing. We won't see his work. So verse 16, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is lifted. So here's what we've got. We've got a people who are sinful and in rebellion to God, and we've got a God who is pursuing them, pursuing them, making a way for them. But in order for them to be his people, in order for them to be in him to be in their presence, they have to obey his law. They have to live this way, and they can't do it. Change doesn't come from the law. Just because they had the Ten Commandments, they were unable consistently to live them out. And so what must happen? Something greater must happen. And we see it. The prophets allude to it, that one day Christ is, like, the one day God's going to do a work when he's going to take out the people, he's going to take out their heart of stone, and he's going to put in a heart of flesh. And on that heart of flesh is going to be written the word of God. And they will be transformed from the inside out. It won't be about this external list of laws that we have to conform to and try to do better and get there so that we can be in God's presence. Instead, it'll be about the transformation that he has done in us when he took out our heart of stone, placed in a heart of flesh, and all of a sudden, things have changed. We're a new creation. We long to please our God. We long to live by his laws. We long to live out his design for us. We long to be in his presence, and that is what leads to transformation in our life. That is how we change. It's not this external list. Get this right and then you'll, you'll be here. No, no. It's this internal transformation. And that happens not when you just decide that you're ready to become a Christian. Or you decide, like I've heard people say this, well, you know, one day like I'll, I'll come back to church. One day I'll be, I'll be ready. And, and I think so many people, especially in our, in our culture, right? Bible Belt culture, there's churches all around. People think like, okay, I know I should do that. Right? And by that, they mean go to church and live a, a good life, right? You know people like this. They think that's what we're doing. They think that all of you have just chose to be a church person, right? And that's how they view what we're doing here. And, and what this is saying is it is nothing like that. It wasn't you choosing to be a good person. It was Christ choosing to save your broken self, right? And, and giving you a new heart and a new life. And that leads to transformation that nobody can explain outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that happens when we turn to the Lord. When one turns to the Lord. Romans 10, 9 says that when we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, that we shall be saved. I say it this way all the time. When you recognize that you are a sinner and you need a savior and you can't do that on your own, And when you confess that Jesus is that Savior, that you believe that he's not just some mythical, you know, biblical, like that he's actually the Son of God who came and died on the cross 
for your sins and he was resurrected on the third day and that he, that he reigns in heaven giving pardon to all who would trust in him. When you confess, Jesus, I believe you are that savior. I need one desperately and I believe that you are and I will make you the Lord of my life. The Bible says you shall be saved. And in that moment, when you are saved, the veil is torn. The, the, the scales fall off. The Bible is full of this imagery. In Matthew, when Jesus himself, when he gives up his last breath, there's an earthquake. It's incredible. There's an earthquake, and, what, and something happens. The veil in the Holy of Holies, I don't have time to unpack all of that, but what used to separate God's people from his very presence is torn. From the bottom? No, from the top. Torn. No longer is there a division between God's people and himself. He has torn that down, and he is invading enemy space. He's taking over enemy occupied territory and he's saving sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner after sinner. And that's you and me. Christ has conquered our hearts. He's taken over the throne of our life. When we trust him as Lord, the veil is removed. And, it, and then the good news is it's not just, okay, great, we'll wait till the end now, right? I got my ticket punched, thank you Jesus, and we just wait till this ride's over. No, 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 that's just the beginning. Yes, we're saved, but we'll no longer be held account for, for our sin. But, and, and we're given freedom from our sin, but freedom to just, you know, do whatever we want, to go on sinning. Paul says, no, 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 by no means. Like, you used to be slaves, and, and now you're, you're sons. Now you're set free, and for freedom, Christ has set you free. What is freedom? Freedom is living the way that we were made to live. Freedom is experiencing the way that God has made us to live. And what is that? That's back to Genesis 1 and 2, in his presence and ruling, having dominion over this earth. That's what he's doing. He's restoring that. And it happens in increasing measure. But how? How do we change? This back to the question that we started out the sermon. How do we change? How do we bring, how do we cultivate that? How do we become more and more like Christ? How does the kingdom come in our life? Verse 16. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. That's step one. 17, now, when the, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's the good news, that, that this new king has come not just to bring a bunch of rules for the sake of rules, but to bring freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, it's back to the veiling of Moses. Like Again, here, back whenever Moses had this moment, of, of God, if you don't go with us, then this is no, there's no point in going. I don't want to go. Just kill us right here in the desert. Like, if you're not going with us. And then Moses cries out later in that story. He says, can you, can you show me your glory? I want to see it. I want to see you. If you know this, Exodus 33, 34, God says, I can't show you all of it. Like, you'll die. But I tell you what, buddy, hang out right there. And I'll pass by and I'll let you just see a glimpse. And that is what transforms and changes and fuels Moses to go on a journey that I don't know that any of us could do, right? If you ever tried to lead people, you know that that's just frustrating. You try to lead these people, right? I'm piecing out multiple times, right? And Moses tried, like, these people were frustrating, but it's the glory of the Lord. It's the longing of his presence. It's that that keeps him going. It's that that he's longing for. And this is what he's saying is now it's not just about Moses getting to see that and then coming down and delivering the word, that we all get to go to the mountain now, that we all get to boldly approach the throne of grace now and behold our God. And that is what brings transformation. 
It's not, hey, go get better, do better, learn to get your life together, and then maybe you can enjoy the presence of the Lord. It's no, no, no. Trust in Jesus and come enjoy the presence of the Lord. And as you're in his presence, you'll be transformed. You'll be made better. You'll do better. You'll live better. It's incredible. It's the, it's the message of grace. And it's offensive to so many people because we want to have a part in it, right? We want to feel like we've accomplished something. No, no, it's all about Jesus. And so the way that we change is beholding his glory. Being in the presence of God. Verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed all at once. No, no, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It is being in the presence of the living God. It's being in his presence that transforms us. And and if we skip down to chapter 4, verse 6, it says this, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we find the glory of God? Where do we see that? In the face of Jesus Christ. That is is how we change. That is how transformation happens in our life. So I want to walk through just three implications of what that looks like for us. What does that mean for us? How do we live that out? And and, and all of it is about understanding that it is his presence that is what matters. That is the gift that he's purchased for us. It's not about heaven and the the streets of gold and the, the pearly gates. All of that's just bonus. The real gift of heaven is God's presence. Amen. That is what makes it all worthwhile. And so Jesus has accomplished that for us. He's gifted us with that. And we have this already, but not yet. We have Jesus now. The Spirit, like, he came, Jesus came. His name was what? Emmanuel, God with us. He came and he tabernacled with us is the language there. He used to dwell in a tabernacle, right? And he was only there, and he came and dwelt with Emmanuel, God with us. But then Jesus makes a way, punches down the door of death, blows open the enemy's gates, and allows a way for us to be saved. And once our sin is dealt with, now the Spirit of God comes. Jesus says, i got to go because it's going to be really good when I go because I'm going to send the Spirit. I'm going to send the Helper, and he's going to come, and he's going to take up residence in each of you that have trusted in the, in the name of Jesus as your Savior. You are in the presence of God. In fact, when he leaves, the, 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 the Great Commission that we looked at last week, go make disciples, and what does he say? Behold, I am with you always. So, we are all in his presence. We all have access to that, and that is where we find transformation. So, so often what we think we got to do, and, and Satan wants us to think this, is learn to do better, get better, and then we can come to, to the Lord. No, no, it is absolutely flipped around that it doesn't matter how bad or how good we've done. Instead, the invitation is to come to the Lord. And so three implications for this is, first of all, here's how I think big categories, how we experience Jesus's presence, how we commune with him, how we enjoy that gift here now while we wait on the ultimate, you know, presence of God, the, the Revelation 21, the, the, the dwelling place of God is with man. While we wait for that, how do we, how do we enjoy, how do we cultivate, how do we uh, become more like Jesus by enjoying his presence? I think three big categories, and they're certainly not going not gonna to unpack all of these, or, or these aren't the extent of them, but I think, first of all, is, is through prayer, secondly, through reading of his word, and then third, through worship. So I want to just talk about implications for those just briefly, and then we're going to worship. 
and we're going to lean in and ask for his presence. And, and so, so, so first, Jesus, I, I switched the orders on these just, um, but Jesus, first of all, like we grow in holiness by beholding King Jesus. We behold King Jesus, we enjoy his presence by understanding that first of all, he is the high priest of our prayers. Presence is what it's all about. Being with God is the thing that we are made for. And understanding that Moses is the one that interceded for, for God's people back in Exodus, and it is Jesus who intercedes for us. Hebrews 4, uh, 14 through 16 says, Since then we have a, such a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has tempted us as we are, yet without sin. Let us then... With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have to understand that we don't pray on our own accord. We don't, like, it, it's not, sometimes we don't feel worthy to enter into the Father's presence, but it is Jesus who has made that possible. He is the one who intercedes on our behalf. He is our mediator that stands between us and God and, and allows us to boldly approach the throne. That's incredible. It's incredible, and it is through Jesus. Secondly, Jesus, he is the point of our scripture reading. When we read the Bible, we dare not come to it to try to get some good life principles out of it. It kind of irks me when people sort of throw those acronyms in about the Bible, right? Basic instructions before leaving earth, or I don't know what the other ones are, right? And again, the heart there, I don't mean to mock, the heart there is not bad, but you're missing the point. This is not self-help. When you read the Bible, you shouldn't be just look. You shouldn't be merely. Let me put it that way. You should not be merely looking for principles to apply to your life. Instead, you should be looking to commune with the living God. Jesus says it this way to a bunch of religious people who know the script. They like literally the first five books of the Bible. They've got it memorized, right? Anybody want to raise their hand and try to challenge that pedigree? You're like, I can't even read those things. They're really complicated and. All right, I get lost in Leviticus, right? But they've got it memorized. These jokers are like varsity-level Bible scholars. And Jesus tells them this in John chapter 5, 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus said, listen, you're reading the Bible, you're reading the Bible, you're memorizing the Bible, and you're missing the whole point of the Bible because it's about me. It's about me. Jesus is the point of our Bible reading. So we have to approach the Bible in that way and expecting, hoping, pleading to spend time with him in his presence. And that is where we are changed. That is where we are transformed. Not just by, okay, I did it, I read it. No, by experiencing his presence. That's how he speaks to us. He's, some of us want, and I've been guilty of this too, like I just wish you would, t- I wish you would speak to me, Lord. Right? I wish you would reveal yourself to me, Lord. Right? And he says, hey, I have. I have. But, but listen, Satan wants to change our posture toward this. He wants us to think this is a chore. He wants us to think it's anything else other than spending time with the living God, right? Jesus is the point of our scripture reading. Lastly, he is the object of our worship. When we get, and I'm, and I'm talking particularly, I know worship is all of life, and I, I don't mean to teach on that. I'm talking particularly about gathered corporate worship. When we gather in this room, I, I tell you all the time, it ain't about how good your voice is or whether you like to sing or whether you're able to sing. God does something in the midst of this gathering when we sing praises, when we sing truth, 
We sing songs to him. He does something in the midst of that. He, he, he commands us to do it for our good and for his glory. He is the object of our worship. So I want you to think about this. He is the king seated on the throne. The Bible says he's at the right hand of the father today. And he, he'll stay there until all of his enemies are made as footstool. And then he's going to come back. Right? It's an incredible picture. So in the meantime, we're worshiping that king. So every time we gather together and, and we're singing songs, like we're worshiping the king of kings. We're declaring his worth. We are having ourselves a moment of surrender. Where we come in and week after week and time after time, we approach his throne and we say, you got to take more of me. You are holy and I am not got to take more of me. I surrender. People are raising their hands. Like, I don't know everybody's heart, but like, that's not about like, look at me, I'm holier than you. No, this is surrender. I, I, I'm, I'm glimpsing, I'm beholding the glory of the living God, and I got nothing, right? I got nothing but surrender in that moment. And as we surrender, as we worship, as we declare his worth, he takes over more and more of our heart, and we're transformed from one degree of glory to another, and the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes in you, in me, in us, in increasing measures, as we grow in holiness, the kingdom comes. When it comes to worship, there's a pastor named Bob Russell that offered a helpful analogy about the heart of worship, I think, um, with a certain basketball team. I'm not going to say which one because I don't want to give them that praise. But when a basketball team won the national championship a couple years ago, a few days later, there was a celebration in the arena to honor them. And the audience, I want you to picture this. So they've already won the national championship, and then they gather together in this arena to honor the team, right? And the audience is there, and they're cheering wildly for each player as he's introduced. The fans are carrying banners. They've painted their faces. They're wearing the team colors. They're trying to get autographs. And listen, no fan walked away from that saying, man, that event was a dud. It didn't do anything for me. He says this, the event was a success, not because the performance was great, they didn't even play basketball, right? It wasn't a success because the players' speeches were inspiring. Most of them are not good public speakers. The event was a success because everyone understood why they were there. Their purpose was not to please the fans, but to honor the team. People walked away saying, man, that was really great. I hope the team knows how great we think we are. they are. I hope they know how much we appreciate them. And in a similar way, authentic worship is our attempt to communicate how much we admire, adore, and appreciate King Jesus. I heard Francis Chan, a pastor, say to someone whenever they came up to him and say, I didn't really, I didn't really enjoy worship today. He said, that's okay, it wasn't for you. <laughs> and that's helpful. I need to hear that sometimes. I need to hear that. Because it's about gathering before our king, his people. Cumulatively gathering his presence together as each spirit, like tabernacle, is gathered in this place. The concentrated presence of the Lord is here and we declare his worth. We tell him how great he is and it is our act of worship before our king. So no, it's really not about us. 
right? Like we, at the journey, like we, we try to operate, like the Bible certainly says sing new songs and, and we try to do, but like we, we want there to be, like we want this to be a place where people could come in and if they, they, they haven't listened to a lot of, like that they can worship. And so what we, we try to do is, is, is try not to throw a bunch of new songs at you each week. Why? Because it's not about entertaining you. It's about worshiping together as a people. And so we want to make sure you know the songs. So we want to make sure that there's a, there's a culture of engagement. There's a culture where you're all able to, to sing with us because again, it's about that. It's about being before our king and worshiping him. And yes, we try to be sensitive to and always be, again, there's a psalm that says, singing to the Lord a new song. So we're always trying to lean into that. But our, our primary value that we're operating off of is engagement for the people of God so that we sing together. It's not about, man, I hope they really do my song or this song. Like, no, no, it is about King Jesus. It is about declaring his worth. So, the point of all we do is not to become good people through these means, right? So many people come to church and operate that way. All of these things are meant to bring us near to Christ, and near to Christ is where we will be changed to be like Christ, and that is where we experience freedom. That is where we experience life. When we worship, when we read, when we pray, we're getting to, uh, like we are being in the presence of God, and in the presence of God, we are beholding his glory, and that is how we are changed. That is where we're satisfied beyond comprehension. That is where we drink from the fountain of living water. I think of John 4 when Jesus is having the exchange with the Samaritan woman and they're talking about, Jesus says, hey, if you knew who I was, you'd ask, for, ask me for a drink because if I give you a drink, you'll never be thirsty again. She's like, that sounds great. Give me some of that. And he goes, it's, it's about something totally deeper. And the conversation ends with Jesus saying, yeah, there's coming a day when people will be worshiping, not about this building or that building or that mountain or that temple, no, but about worshiping in spirit and in truth. And what he's saying is that's the real gift that he's accomplished for us is to be able to be in the presence of God and we worship through that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to sing we're going to sing two songs today instead of just one after the sermon. We're going to sing we're going to sing two and I want us to set in this. I want us to seek him. I want us to pray to him. I want us to ask boldly for things. We've been talking about prayer in our PM time. And I want to uh, ask boldly for things and particularly I want to ask for his presence. Right, that we wouldn't come and, and hope that the music stirs us. Instead, we would hope that the, the living God is, is present in a powerful and manifested way. I know he's always with us, but there's times when he manifests himself and the people of God go, my goodness, my goodness, the Lord was in this place. I want us to ask for that. I want us to hope for that. I want us to come in each week thirsty for that. God, I'm grateful I'm grateful for Christ, the victory that he has accomplished, the hope that we have through him. And I pray, Lord, and I ask that you would reign, Lord Jesus, here in this place today, that your kingdom would come, your will would be done in increasing measure here in this place right now that those who have never bowed their knee and trusted you and called out to you to be their savior, that they would do that this morning. That we would get to welcome and celebrate them entering into the kingdom of God. That we would get to see, like know that the heavens are rejoicing as a sinner has repented. Would you grant us that today? Lord, and for the rest of us, would you cause holiness to come and, and grow? Would your kingdom come in each of us? Would you grant us that? It is your work. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
as we come, Lord. Have your way in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.